Before we get into our episode, a quick word from our sponsor. International Misanthropy and Fringe present Friday, September 15th, 2023 at the Kingsland in Brooklyn. Bob Marinelli, the noise enigma from the 90s. First show in forever. Also appearing Star, Albrick, DSM-3, Half Mortal, Dust Belt, Skin Crime, Laureate. Tickets at the door, $25. A night of international misanthropy. You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Mike Connolly. Hello. And unfortunately, Tara could not join us today, but who we do have here is Paul B. Hampshire of Getting the Fear into a Circle and a lot of other projects that we'll talk about and a very storied history Hello, B. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Lovely to see you both. Hi. And uh, astute listeners may remember that Drew McDowell mentioned B when we did that uh, two-part interview with him. And it was a name that was coming up kind of regularly in some of the research we've been doing and seeing around. And there's, of course, the uh, classic Temple of Psychic Youth photo where uh, you can see you there with the Getting the Fear <laughs> Manson Eyes shirt amongst Jan and everyone else with their with their Charles Manson shirts with the uh, some with the Process Church logo on them. And yeah, just a <laughs> classic. You know, it's funny to start connecting the dots when you know more about this and are exposed to more and more people that the underground has spread out in these ways. And so we're very happy to, to talk with you today. And I guess, you know, before we did this, I asked how people like to be introduced and uh, we we discussed B. Uh, where does that nickname come from? How did you oh, become uh, start being called B? Uh, it's kind of a long story. Have you got time? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, um, that's what we're doing. <laughs> so first of all, I must say that I spent most of my life living in in Bangkok, in Thailand. And when I first went there, uh, I, I had the nickname B. And by by what I thought was coincidence. Uh, B is also a time nickname, so a lot of people are called B there. Usually women, but quite often men too. And I'm like, oh wow, that's interesting. And then years later, I found out that how I got the name dates back to I'd done my stint in Japan playing keyboards and doing all the pop band stuff in Japan, and I was going decided to launch a solo career. So I was working with a great manager guy, David Claridge. Uh, and he said, the idea was that we were going to la- launch this project and uh, we would create this character called B, which was very androgynous. You didn't know what sex I was and stuff. And we'd put pictures all around town. This was before Culture Club and stuff. Um, so that it was a thing then. And we we thought we should come up with a name that, that didn't put me to a specific gender. And so he came up with the name. He, he watched a movie called Emmanuel, which is uh, kind of an amazing starring Sylvia Crystal. And it's kind of like a soft porn kind of cinema movie. Very familiar with that. the Emmanuel movies. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, he, he'd seen that. And, and he said there was this character in there and she played um, a maid. And it was this big black lady who played a maid called B. And it was Sylvia Crystal's maid or something. And, and he said, let's use that name. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I went with that. And so that I was also, we were doing a play as well. And we needed uh, a name for my character in the play, which was also not to stick to a gender. It was going to be based on the Diaries of Petronius, which uh, later became uh, Fellini's Satyricon, 
um, and the character that I was playing was based on a character called Zutan, but we didn't want to use that name. We wanted to use another one. So we used the name B for the play as well. And it just kind of stuck. It just seemed right. And um, so I went with it. And then um, years and years and years later, I did all my Thai thing. And then 30 something years later, I was working uh, in Thailand, editing a magazine. And I decided to do something about Thai writers, especially Thai female writers, and discovered to my surprise that the woman that wrote the Emmanuel was actually Thai. And so the name, yeah, and so actually the name did come from Thailand. It's a common Thai name. So that is a that is an incredible circle there uh, of Mm. of of how that name came to be. And and what years was this when you were in Thailand originally? Um, so the first time I went to Thailand was in 1987. And I got the name B in 1981. Gotcha. Yeah. And you mentioned playing in bands, of course. Uh, wh- how did you start? How did you get involved in music? When did that happen for you? And, and how oh. did you start forming bands? Oh, well, when I was kind of um, a young kid, I, I, I kind of had aspirations to do music and stuff. And, and I was quite l- lucky because punk had just came around when I was about 15, 14, 15. So I was a bit too young being in a kind of northern town for that. And, but I was aware of it and I was into it as well. But what came off the back of punk in the town where I lived, which is called Barnsley, which is 13 miles from a town called Sheffield which was basically the heart of what we, you know, would like to coin as industrial music. So you had these bands like uh, Cabaret Voltaire would play there and Club DVA and very early Human League. And they were very much inspired by the industrial Sheffield scene because it was a big uh, steel industry, very bleak and quite dystopian. And the music that they were making reflected that as well. So when I was kind of 17, 18, I started, I, I realized that I, I kind of needed to get out of the town I was in. So I, I ended up in spending most of my time in Sheffield and just got into the music scene there and just started going to these these shows where, you know, Clock DVA would be playing and there'd be like 30 people and bands like I'm So Hollow, which never made it big, uh, but were kind of amazing. Vendino Pact, all these amazing bands. And um, I've been doing a bit of punk music before that um, with with a guy called Stephen Rowlings, who uh, we had a little band called Why when we were about maybe 15 years old. And we would, we had, I bought a little Wasp synthesizer. <laughs> and so I was playing that and Steve was singing. And um, so we're doing our little stuff. And then we actually decided to do a demo. So we booked a studio in Sheffield and it turned out that it was Western Works, which was the Human League's uh, studio. So we did this little eight track demo and like Phil Oakey walked in and we were like, wow, God. Yes. <laughs> it was kind of, it was really formative that that period. And um, and so so I kind of hitched onto all that and we started doing electronic music and, and it was all going great. And then we, we, we kind of were getting a lot more interested in doing a lot more shows and we wanted, we realized we wanted to take it a stage further. So we um, hooked up with a couple of 
uh, people that could really play. Uh, and then that's when we formed a band, which originally were called Dance Crazy. But then a movie came out a few months later, influenced by the uh, the Scar trend, which was like Madness and Selection. That was called Dance Crazy. So then we changed the name to Dance Society. Within weeks of doing that, I decided to leave the band. Because uh, <laughs> I, I basically, we, we did a show in Leeds, this amazing club called the F Club. Um, we supported this kind of glam punk band. They've kind of been erased from history because when they were a punk band, they were called Rate. And later they became a glam punk band and changed their name to Cuddly Toys. And they were a bit Bowie-esque and uh, kind of outrageous. We, we played, we supported them at this show called the um, F Club and kept in touch with them. And a few months later, the drummer, who was a Japanese uh, guy, who was called Paddy, Paddy Field, um, uh, he um, he wrote to me and he said, hey, um, the couple of times have split up, but I'm forming a band and we're going to be big in Japan. Would you be interested in moving down to London and joining this band, which are going to be big in Japan? And I wrote back and said, I really want to get the fuck out of Dodgeville. I'd had enough of, of living in the north of England. It was very kind of bleak and brutal. Um, so I said, yes. And he said, the only catch is that the music is not going to be what you're used to. The music is going to be pop because this band is going to be big. There's a lot of record company interest in this band. There's a big management company on board. It's going to be really, you know, successful, but the music is going to be just pop. And I was young. I was like, I wasn't even 20. I was in my late teens. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be fine. So I, I kind of went along with it, moved down to London with my keyboards. By then I'd got a cat synthesizer and, a, and an amazing uh, string machine, which I loved. And so I took on my keyboards, moved down to London, joined this band. We started rehearsing and sure that the music was really awful. It was really poppy kind of <laughs> stuff. But I was, I, was, I was kind of, you know, intrigued by what was happening and young as well. And within months, within literally, this is, sounds hard to believe now, but within months, our faces were on the front of Japanese magazines. We, we signed a deal with Toshiba EMI. We uh, were in all these kind of like amazing Japanese magazines and, um, and we were doing really well in Japan. But the, the music that we'd made was diaper. It was awful. It was really pop. And it was a real like 1950s hype situation. We, the, all the interviews that we would do uh, would be scripted and things like that. So, um, but then I got the chance, they, so I already I wasn't happy with it mm. because I wasn't, I was thrilled by and enthralled by the process of what was happening to me. Um, because in, this is 19, about 1980. So, you know, Japan was a long way from a young lad from the north of England. Um, and so I, I went along with it and um, I was the pretty one in the band. <laughs> so all the press and all the girls, even though I was a keyboard player, uh, they all kind of focused on me. And so I got all the attention, which didn't please the singer. And there was a big fight between the singer and the drama, uh, probably over me, and which resulted in them both kind of leaving the band. And we'd got a 
promotional tour scheduled. Um, and so I said, well, I'm not going to go either. And the drummer said to me, the Japanese, I stayed friends with him, Paddy. He said, listen, be just go, please, because, you know, there's been a lot of investment. His family had invested in it as well. So I went along for that alone to Japan. So if you picture the scene, I'm fresh from the north of England, finished school at 16, um, not worldly traveled at all. I So I, I go to Heathrow, get on a plane to Japan. I don't even know how to check in at an airport. I go with my little suitcase, go on, get on the flight, turn up at Narita Airport. And the plan was that they were supposed to catch me and meet me off the plane. Somehow that got lost in translation. I came off the plane and just followed the other passengers. And in those days, there were, you know, customs and that were different today. You could just waltz through. So I kind of did. And I got, I cleared customs and went through. And then in those days, Narita Airport had like, you could see the outside. There was a glass doors and walls separating um, between the two sides. And so I checked, cleared customs. I was with, I had my little suitcase on a trolley and I was walking towards this glass wall behind which was like a sea of screaming Japanese girls. I mean, I mean, hundreds of them. And they were just screaming. Crazy. Yeah, a crazy, crazy, crazy. And 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 I I just froze. And I, I literally, I swear, I looked behind me because I thought there would be like Bowie or someone behind me. <laughs> and, and then as I got closer, I could see they, they were holding pictures of me. So I thought, what the fuck do I do? So I froze. And um, and then suddenly, either side of me, these these guys, security guys, just literally jumped on me, grabbed me, whisked me back through customs, um, through the back channels of the airport, took me around the back and threw me into a, a van in which were waiting the record company, the interpreter, and the Japanese management company. Um, so yeah, that was pretty scary. And <laughs> so I did I did the whole PR uh, tour, first of all, on my own, where I was doing radio, TV shows. Um, yeah, I'm just learning the ropes. And so I did that for about a year, which was wonderful. But after a year, I was just totally I was dying inside because I knew that the music was awful. And, you know, before that, I was really into, you know, Robin Grissel and all the, you know, all this stuff. And um, so after doing it for a year I, I and tours and stuff, I turned and I said, look, I'm done. And also, oh, by the way, <laughs> I wasn't getting any money. There was lots of money, but I wasn't getting any of it. So I'm like, you oh, know geez. what? I'm done. My mom's bored of seeing me on the front covers of magazines, uh, you know. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. And they told me, they said, look, we've invested too much money. You can't just leave. And and I'm like, well, I, I am. And they said, we'll sue you. And I'm like, fine. I don't have anything. Sue me. Yeah. <laughs> what are you? What are you gonna get? Mm, you ain't gonna get anything. So, so I, I called. Um, their bluff and I and I just left. But the interesting thing was that the towards the end of my stay there on, on the last visit, uh, I was doing we had an interview schedule and the last interviews, the last interview of the day, I just thought, fuck this. I'm just not gonna stick to the script. I'm just gonna say what, you know, what I feel. And in walks this really cool looking guy with a with a long gray trench coat and dark sunglasses with this gorgeous um, 
girl with with big hair and lots of punk makeup, which, by the way, in Japan was unusual then. It it didn't happen. It did not happen. In in the early eighties, Japanese people did not look like they, you know, we know them now. None of that existed. In fact, the bands that that we that I was in and that they kind of inspired a lot of this big hair and makeup stuff, which they call visual K in Japan now. Um, and I know people that are really famous on the visual K scene, like that are in X Japan and Lu- and Lucifer. And they told me that my band and that inspired their look when they were like 13, <laughs> which, is oh, wow. which, is, which is crazy. So anyway, back to the last interview. So they walked in and I thought, oh, well, yeah, now I'm going to tell them what I really think. So we sat down and the first question said, so what music are you into? My, my, on the script, it was like, oh, I like T-Rex and David Bowie. And, and I just said, oh, I like Sobbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, I, I'm so hollow. And they just looked <laughs> yes. at me like, and so basically they then threw away their questions. I threw away my answers and we did a proper interview and it was really great. And at the end of the interview, they said, actually, um, which is not very Japanese. They said to me, you know what? We did come here to just really uh, take you to town and, and, you know, annihilate you in this interview, full, full disclosure. But it was amazing. We, we just had no idea. So it was a real pivotal moment as well, like, you know, for me. Um, so then that's when I got back. So then I went back to the UK and basically started, not from scratch, because it was like doing an apprenticeship in... Uh, in the music industry. I, I made all the mistakes I didn't want to make. I, I sold out. I made music that I didn't like. So I did all of that early. But I also learned how to do TV and and radio and stuff like that. It was, I mean, I've got loads of stories of the mistakes I made. Do, during, the, during that time in Japan, that year or so, were you keeping up to date about what was going on in the UK, in the industrial scene, or were you pretty cut off while you were in Japan? No, I was definitely keeping up to date because um, I was still, I, I was in England most of the time. I would just go over there. Oh, gotcha. PR and stuff. So, but also there was some great music happening, which is how I met the guy who became my manager because he put out a record uh, called um, The Mobile Suit. He had a company called The Mobile Suit Corporation and he was working with people like YMO, and um, this amazing Japanese band called Earthling that never did anything except this one track, on, which still today is one of my all-time favorite songs ever. Um, so I was, I was kind of aware that in Japan, this little seed was growing as well. So that was kind of exciting. Um, but yeah, still very much into, into the, the, the UK scene, very much. And- and this band that we've been talking about that that went to Japan that was Panache, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah all right. <laughs> I, I remember today. It was such a party. I used to love taking people in when 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 I got rid of it. Well, I thought I got rid of it. So Bert would like take people into the Virgin Megastar on Oxford Road, and we'd go go to the Japanese section and say, "Hey, look, you know this is," and pull out a record with with me on the front or something, <laughs> looking like a little looking like a little <laughs> Japanese doll. Yeah. <laughs> There was that your style before doing the the Japanese pop stuff with the the feathered hair and the makeup because a lot of those photos from back then 
are very, I mean, you're very glammed up in all of them. Very stylish. They look like photos of a model. They don't look like photos of a, of a musician, the way you're presented. Yeah. It, it, well, it, it was kind of, there was this scene in London, which is real. It gets very misrepresented. Uh, um, it was kind of like based around these clubs, like the Blitz, which I missed because I came after that. And, and then these clubs called planets and stuff. And that was very, the look of that time. Um, the, just the big, the big hair and loads of makeup and very androgynous and and stuff. And it was just wear what you want, really. And at the time, I was doing the. You'll see me quite a lot in Roman togas because that, that's when I was doing the play. Uh, we were putting that together, and so it was based on like Fellini's Satyricon and the Diaries of Petronius, which became the Satyricon. So I just wore that stuff out. I'd go out with just. A, a roman like poker <laughs> on to industrial things as well which would be funny um, yeah so yeah i was wearing yeah that in you know it wasn't really influenced by japan i would say I, was, okay. I think we influenced how that became and people like rose switchblade she definitely influenced the way kids are today in japan definitely even more so i think that look so you come back from being in this band and, and touring Japan and doing all this stuff. And it's early 1980s back to, back to the UK. Did you go back to Barnsley or did you go elsewhere? God, no. no well, I mean, I, I would go and visit my parents. I, I never stopped doing that, but no, uh, I, no, I was in London and I came straight back in Japan from Japan. And I was working with the guy that I mentioned, David Claridge, who did the Tokyo the mobile suit record company. He also put together London's kind of since the 60s, first ever real fetish club. And that was the key, one of the keys to me meeting people on the industrial scene as well. I mean, I'd seen them, uh, you know, I'd seen Robin Gosson a, years, a few years before when, when I lived in near Sheffield, uh, but I didn't get to know them. Uh, and the, the fetish club was one of the, the the ways that I got to know them because they would start to come down there. In fact, that mansion picture that you mentioned earlier um, in your intro, uh, that, that that was that was how I got to know everyone because I did the door at the stretches. It was and when it first opened, it was absolutely amazing because there was nothing like it, and you'd get these people coming, traveling like hundred miles by train to go to this little club, uh, and and get dressed up and it was fun and inside they would play like Gregorian chants and all this odd you know, you know not club music and stuff um and but I, I was never really into rubber and stuff and especially in winter it would be hot in the club and you'd be then doing the door and so it would be freezing so as soon as I could I would get changed into just you know other clothes and stuff so and I, I was um since being a young child, uh, I, I, when I was a young kid in Barnsley, I was desperately looking for a way out. So I didn't have any circus skills, so I knew I couldn't join the circus. But I was looking for something to attach to. And 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 I saw this, I think it was something like Elder Skelter. And I don't know why, but the 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 horror and side of it and the murders just went over my head. But what intrigued me was was the kind of family situation 
and these these outcasts that were all kind of ended up together and living together and you know these freaks at all and that always intrigued me so um that was that was really my kind of i would say obsession with with that with manson and that scene um but it did also stuck with me and then when i heard things like throbbing gristle were referencing it on heathen earth and then when i found out you could actually get the lie album which i still today think is a fucking brilliant album absolutely and some of the songs so well crafted and so evocative and yeah so um and at that time you know punk could shock people it, the order of the day was often to shock people that's what we wanted to do we wanted to stick the finger up and go you know um from being a very a, a little kid i was constantly being told i was a freak and there was something wrong with me because i looked you know, I, I was male, but I looked like a little girl. And so people would be always, what the fuck's wrong with you? And stuff like that. So in my head, I'm like, well, if you're going to call me a freak, I'm I'm going to show you what a freak is. So I'm going to really, like, you know, act it up. So that was my um, solution to that. And that putting the finger up became like a, not an obsession, but it became a method as to how I could deal with situations. So punk came and people got you know the all that aesthetic didn't really shock anymore so we were we looked for other ways to like you know put the finger up and so putting manson on the front of a t-shirt you couldn't buy them then you could not buy them otherwise i would have bought one and <laughs> so i really wanted that image on the shirt to, and so I'm not really great at, at actually painting and drawing, but I taught myself how to draw Charlie's face and did it quite well. And so there I am in this little fetish club, got changed out of my rubber and I put my Manson t-shirt on and I'm on the door um, with leather pants and stuff. And and I, I'm not sure if, if, I think it was Jeff, uh, John Balance. Right. Um, he, he just came up and went, that t-shirt? Where the fuck, where, where did you get that t-shirt? And I said, I painted it. And he's like, what? And we struck up a conversation and, and then he was like, please, can you, can you do one for me? So I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, awesome. I knew that, he, I knew that he was in Psychotiv and obviously I like Psych, they, they were just bombing. They were just together. Um, but a friend of mine worked at Sun Bazaar, so I, I was into all that. I knew, and I'm like, yeah, I would have done it anyway. Um, but we, be, you know, we we spoke right until, you know, we both left the club. And then, so I did him one. And then the week after he came down with Tibet, who also wanted one. And Tibet's like, can, can you do one for me also? But then I did one for Tibet. And then and then I got word that Genesis wanted one as well. So that it was Tibet that, it, it was Tibet who said, you know what, why don't we just still, still print, like, screen, like, um, from the original and um so that's when we did the dog's blood order with the process thing on 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 it as well but i did one for jen and so um the photographs that you described it was all the manson t-shirts that i'd some of the which i'd painted some of which i printed with tibet and then some of which uh i did for my band getting the fear which came 
about oh, about a year or so later. That's beautiful. I love that Manson shirts brought you together with mm. all of these people. What an incredible time. And you were saying this is about when Psychic TV was getting underway. Was Current 93 already happening or was oh, that also getting no, underway? Nowhere near, nowhere near. In fact, originally Tibet and I spoke about doing a band called Dog's Blood Order, which we never got past the, the, the speaking stage about it. He went and did stuff, I think, later as Dog's Blood Order, but between us, we never did. But we did speak about that. Um, um, but that that didn't, yeah, we never got that together. Yeah, Current 93 came quite a few years later. Um, this was just, uh, I think the first album had just come out. That was just out. The second album hadn't come out, um, the Psyche TV. Um, so it must have been about 81, maybe. Something like that. Yeah. Wow, what an incredible time. And were you at, at the at the Fetish Club? Were they doing shows at all? Live shows at all? Or was Yeah, it, I nearly we, died in this show there. Well, uh, yeah. we need to hear about that. <laughs> yeah, Chris the DJ, who actually now I think lives in, in LA, uh, he saved my life because we would do dress it was very much um we would do dressing up shows. It was a bit like the Maitress kind of movie type thing where you would dress for pleasure rather, sorry. Um, but we we had, at first we had the real people, like the guy that, did, are you familiar with the Avengers TV series? Um, the Avengers TV oh, the series. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which came out, I think it was the 60s and 70s. It yeah, was out, yeah. Which the guy that actually did all the all Emma Peel's costumes in that was a guy called John Sutcliffe, who, uh, who also did a magazine called Atom Age. And they were like the gods of the scene. And he would come down to the club as well. So it was a, it was that generation, which were then in their 60s, probably. Um, um, so we would do kind of performances, but they would be very kind of... Um, very uh they weren't like brutal performances there was a bit of kind of light spanking and stuff like that but there wasn't like you know fakir type stuff and well, piercings weren't really i mean they, they were just starting back then but they weren't really prevalent um and so the, there was the the one where i almost died so um i i had like a, a gorgeous silver rubber suit and and i just walked into the middle of the dance floor they cleared it and then these these two girls who were all in rubber stuff too, the idea that they would just gradually dress me uh, with all this uh, other things like they they put kind of chains tied up they anchored my hands behind my back first of all, and then then they would put all these thing uh, other chains around my body and and I, I then they put a mask over my head which had two tiny little holes here for the eyes and two tiny little nose holes here for the nostrils so they put that on my head and that was that was all fine and then the final thing was they they put um they were to put a gas mask over my head which they did so my hands are tied by my back i cannot move and they, when they put the gas mask the mask the the rubber one shifted so the the the, the air holes the two tiny holes moved to, and so i couldn't i, I wasn't breathing <laughs> and and I and I suddenly started like panicking and actually fell over and I'm on the floor and everyone's thinking it's the show. Right, right. <laughs> oh jeez. Fuck, Chris, the DJ, 
notice and think, okay, he's not overacting that much. Something's wrong. So he he actually rushed out from from the DJ booth and rushed up, took the mask off, took the gas mask off, and then and then saw that I was you know blue or something. So yeah, I, I nearly died in that club. Yeah, I and I fucking hated rubber before then. Still, so. you really hated <laughs> it after that. Oh yeah. no, rubber's rubber's not my thing. No. <laughs> and what mm. what was this club called? It was called Skin Two. This was Skin Two. Okay, mm, right on. Yeah, Skin Two. Okay, which they they then uh, nothing to do with the magazine, which came later, and the whole brand, but the the magazine and the brand took their name from the club. Yeah, it was yeah, it was an amazing club, really amazing. Yeah. It was a hangout for a lot of people uh, in the early days. I mean, everyone moved on when it became very commercial, but yeah, it was great. Yeah, I guess we we only have so many kind of obscure places to meet like-minded freaks, especially back in 81, 82, right? Well, yes, but you know what? For me, I think then it was easier back then because like, there were various tribal codes one could pick up on. Um, so, for example, if I'm on the underground, if I'm on the subway in in London, and in the eighties, and if if I if the person opposite me had like a you know the Prince Albert ring, mm-hmm. the little round ring with the, with the little ball, yeah, curved barbell, right? If what if if a, if a guy or a girl had that in their ear, you knew in the early eighties they would be into this whole subculture without because right. there, there wasn't any rings like that. It was a it was a real sign that you could see, and you knew that if someone had a particular shirt on, that they would they would be into that. Whereas now, if you see someone in a Ramon shirt, they probably don't know who the Ramones are, so it all <laughs> right, gets right. lost. And if you saw someone with a lot of tattoos back then, you'd know that they would have some story, and you would have some connection. Whereas nowadays. It's just like you don't know what what what's what really. So I miss kind of that. Yeah, the markers, the identifiers. Yeah. So was your were your Manson shirts the sort of gateway to Temple of Psychic Youth for you and becoming affiliated with with Jan and Tibet and those people? Um, yeah, they 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 kind of opened the door because uh, for for like conversations and stuff. And so, but I also met them um, as they were kind of combusting from the inside as well. Uh, like within a few weeks of me meeting them all, uh, Tibet, uh, you know, had issues. And so Tibet stopped doing stuff with, with the temple, let's say the temple. And then within a few months of that, so did Jeff and Sleaze as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, so they did Fracture, but, um, I'm kind of one of the few people that managed to stay friends with, with most people would take sides, but there, but a few of us didn't, um, which wasn't easy, but like John Gosling, he, he stayed friends with both Jen and with Sleeves and, you know, the, the camps, the different camps. That's um, uh, John from Zoskia. Yes, yes, yeah. Um so yeah, so so yeah, so it was um it was difficult. It wasn't easy to to navigate that at all, but I'm so glad that I did. 
Yeah. What were the live shows like as far as psychic TV or even just the, those early industrial shows? You know, we, we sit here and we look back on history and, and for us, these are just completely legendary shows we hear about. You know, you know, throbbing Grishel shows. We hear about Psychic TV. We hear about Cabaret Voltaire. At the time, what was the vibe at the time of those early shows? And was it, you know, was it were they just jam packed? Were there some shows that were just empty but ended up being magical? Was it just a lot in between? Um, very few were jam packed for me. Um, very very few. Um, um, like. The early shows in Sheffield, as I mentioned, with with the cabaret with cabaret Voltaire and they must be Russians and Bendino Park, those kind of industrially type ones were sometimes like thirty people. Right. Um, when when I in about the nineteen eighty show, uh, when I was still lit up there, I saw uh, one of the last shows I saw there was um, Throbbing Gristle and Cabaret Voltaire. They they played Sheffield Polytechnic and. I would say maybe there were maybe 150, 200 people there. Right, right. Um, but as a as a young kid, I mean, I wasn't. I was. I was in my late teens. Um, that gig was particularly because uh, um, I'd I'd kind of nicked some of my mum's slimming pills, and so my friend who Jane, who later went on to manage some bazaar, um, we we so we had these. I think they were called Trilladum. So it was like fear speed. And so we went and and it was fucking loud. I mean, it was really loud. I mean, people, I mean, I've seen the swans and I know they're loud, but to me that maybe the experience turned the volume up in my head, not just of the drugs, but of the actual, you know, being so young in this place with these much older people that were that were living living it. Like, I mean, it was kind of frightening, but 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 enchanting as well. It was like, yeah. Um, I mean, the first time I heard Robin Gristle, I remember I'd been to Sheffield again to see some gig, which I can't remember, but we couldn't get home. So we were staying in um, a friend's place in the squat. I don't think they had electricity, so it was like candles and stuff. And they'd got a little cassette player that was battery driven. And they said, oh, you heard of this band? And and they said they call Throbbing Gristle, which we all laughed at because in the north we know that that means like a hard dick, and and yeah. we're like, oh, great name, and and so they put it on, and it was the I forget which number, but it was in one of the industrial tapes, and it was, uh, which is still is my be- my favorite. It was um, very friendly, and oh, it was, yes. and so there we are in. Sheffield in this bleak squat by candlelight, listening to this like the most frightening fucking soundtrack of the time because it was like a news report, and it was made even more real because the the Yorkshire Ripper was still out and about at that time, so he was still picking people off the streets and you know you know doing what he did. Uh, it it was really really frightening and but. But also, really, kind of, you wanted to know more, and it oh, was yeah. like, yeah. So that, so that was the um, the first experience of Trub and Crystal, um, and then the first show that I went to, um, 
And but there were lots of other amazing ones. I I did see Cabaret Voltaire at this. They had this um, festival in Leeds, which was called the Futurama. And I went to that, and that was like uh, maybe a, a couple of thousand people, maybe say a thousand and one and a half thousand. And Cabaret Voltaire, it, the lineup was like, uh, it, it was kind of Cabaret Voltaire, um, U2, and they weren't famous. They were like fifth on the bill or something. And um, Joy Division, and, uh, and um, oh God, Vice Versa, all these amazing bands. And um, and I've seen Cabaret Voltaire a few times before, but at that show in particular, they were fucking insane. They were so, it was so loud. Because if you see them in a little club, that's one thing. But if you see them with that amplification, it oh, was insane. Man. It was, I mean, they they really cut it. It was really, you know, I've st I can still have an imprint of them doing nag, nag, nag. I can still hear it in my head. It it was so, and that's kind of forty odd years earlier. Uh, so, so yeah, um, that was the, one of the only big shows that I could say I I distinctly remember. But there were lots of little ones. <laughs> there was one where um, we went. It was in some little underground art gallery, and it was when Jeff had left uh, Psychic TV, and he was doing other things. I don't think Kyle were together. And he was doing a thing with John Gosling and Mark Almond. And it was like a performance type thing. And um, and they were just using lots of body fluids. And there was other people around. And someone <laughs> decided that maybe, you know, part of the performance, they shat. <laughs> Which if you're in a fucking basement with like, that held like 30 people, that's not an experience I really want to remember. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that wasn't the, yeah, 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 that's still got an imprint, but I'd like to lose that one if possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's documented. It might have been at, I forget what gallery it was, but it was in a basement gallery. I know Val was there, Val Denham and people like that. They did, they did a, a Val and his wife used to do this funny thing where they'd play at the same event like that with, with these dark, dark kind of um, acts and stuff. And Val and his wife, Alita, would come on and they'd be all, they'd have these like poppy songs and they'd be like, we're tired of everyone singing about mass murders. We want to talk about, sing about bunny rabbits, which was fucking crazy. But it, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was daring in those situations. Um, yeah. Was it? Yeah, uh, so, I'm curious. Yeah, I remember from my my coil uh, memory banks. Was it Air Gallery? Maybe. Yeah, I thought it was Air Gallery, but I wasn't going to say. So okay. yes, it was. It was. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think there might be video of that performance. Really? Yeah, I might be wrong. Uh, hold on, I'll, I can actually look because I remember. Oh, I hope so. It. And if so, I hope that Val and Alita are on there. I think they were called something like Amoeba Superstar, something like There's, that. When they did the Color Sound Oblivion box set, the, the when Coral put out the like live uh, backing track DVD mm. stuff, uh, that's the first performance on it. Is Air Gallery London, uh, 824, 1983. Wow. So wow. there is video documentation of, of that performance. You'll never, you're never gonna, you're never going to get rid of it. It will always no. be there for you. Yeah. 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 Oh, no. but, what, but what an exciting time just in general, you know, we've got, we've, 
obviously recently got to talk to Drew. You know, we've talked to mm-hmm. Nigel Ayers of Nocturnal Emissions, and for for us, it, we we just we can't ever get enough of hearing about that that time and and thinking about that time and just just that exciting creativity that was really blossoming around it, and everyone with their coming from different places and different ideas and different mm-hmm. angles and then going off into different angles and, and different zones and different styles of music and just, but coming from these underground shows in, in the UK and galleries and, and strange places mm-hmm. where there where everyone, where everything seemed to be permitted from yes. bodily fluid performances to strange pop songs to, yeah. you know, industrial. Yeah. It must've just been that, just that that exciting energy just must have been infectious at that time. Mm, well, it, it was kind of my, it was like nothing is defined, everything is permitted, because there was no real definitions of what we were doing, of what people were doing. There was no one that would say, no, you can't do that because it doesn't fit the genre. Or, you know, um, so that was great. There was, it was like there was no rules to be even broken with things. Uh, one could do whatever whatever you thought would benefit what you were doing. You could just bring it in. So that was why it was so kind of fractured in in so many ways. And you know, you know, with me, I, I had like long hair down down to my uh, nipples, and and then everyone else would have skinheads. And you know, I'd be running around in a Roman toga when they're all in long leather trench mats and and stuff. And so so that it was very liberating and. Um, but we did have core values which aligned. We did have that, and there was this, you know, the, you know, codes that run through everything that we did as well. Um, we were kind of flippant, but also serious in things that we did as well. Um, yeah, we were committed. We were very, very committed. It was Absolutely. there was commitment there. But yeah, it wasn't it blind like it. commitment. That that's the, that's the, the essence of it. Yeah. So fast forward a uh, maybe a year or two after this, and you start your your next band, which is sort of I what I guess I would think of as it sounds like earlier. The earlier stuff was kind of something you were doing, you know, or at least Panache was something you were doing because it was it was a way to get out of where you were and a way to yes. experience things. Yeah. Yeah. But Ian Asbury leaves Southern Death Cult, right? <laughs> and yeah. getting the fear starts. So you, yeah. you're now thrown yeah. into this band that kind of was already sort of the, it was the same members of Southern Death Cult with mm, you on yes. vocals, yeah. Yes. What what happened is that I, I back to the club. I was doing the door of this club, but I was looking um, looking to do my solo stuff, and then and then. You know, people like Jeff and that was saying, you, and Jen was saying, you, you should get a band, don't, you know, you need a band as well. Because I work with people like Bill Nelson and Blamange, these these acts of trying to do stuff together, but it wasn't, nothing was gelling. Um, and so I, I forget which, could it be Jeff or it could have been Genesis. When I say Jeff, I mean John Balance, by the yes, way. Yes, yeah. Um, um, and, and so... Then one night I was doing the Darthus Club and my friend Jane, who did run some bazaar, walked in with this guy that I, I kind of knew vaguely uh, called Mark Manning, who was uh, would later become Zodiac Mindwalk. Okay. Um, yeah. So so they walked in and 
and I was, and she said, "Oh, what are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'm looking for a band." And and Mark Manning, Zodiac Mindwap, said, "Oh, my mates are looking for a singer. Why don't you get in touch with them?" And so he said, "I'll give you their number." So he gave me the number, and then I called them up, and I spoke to Akina West, the drummer, and he went, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're looking, we're looking for a new singer. What are you doing?" So I told him what I'd done, and he said, "Why do you fancy coming up to Bradford?" Uh, to see how, and we'll do a rehearsal. So it works out. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I did. And um, I hadn't heard of Southern Death Court much. Okay, so I was going to ask, you, you weren't familiar? No, I didn't know any of their songs. I didn't know who Ian was. I'd seen, I'd seen a picture, but that was this positive punk thing, which we weren't into, and it wasn't our groove, basically. <laughs> um, so not at all into it. Uh, didn't didn't dislike it, but I didn't right, just, have any yeah. affinity. Nothing. And so so I went up there um, and they started playing all this stuff and we got on personally really well. And the, but they themselves were also at odds with each other, like Buzz, who I still love today. He was doing this funky funk guitar, which was a bit like Haircut 100 type funk guitar. And then Barry was a bit darker and doing his stuff. And then Aki was doing tribal drumming and stuff. And so we did a rehearsal and, and I was... I was new to singing anyway. I didn't want to play keyboards. So I, I was just singing. I was finding my 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 lyric and my voice. Uh, but so I was, you know, I wasn't that great. But we kind of got on and we said, well, it kind of works a bit, but we're not sure. And so we said to each other, well, why don't we just give it a few weeks and keep doing it and see what happens? And then... And then basically about two months later, we'd written a bunch of songs and we went in to demo them. And um, we did the demo. And after the demo was recorded, which later we got released somewhere, and, um, and maybe it's on the day of stuff, actually, uh, they turned around to me. They were, dro- they were dropping me back off at Jen's house because I was looking after the dog while they were in Iceland. And... Um, and they they said to me, "Hey, good news! You're in the band." And and my my <laughs> my reaction was, "Can we just wait a bit longer?" Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> the 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 thing was that I've not explained is that they've been looking for a singer for like a year, and they've been getting all these people turning up that just look like Ian uh, Ian the the previous singer, and like carbon copies of of him. And so, and I was at complete odds. I was completely opposite to all of what they were doing. So I still wasn't sure. But then I, but then I thought, well, I'm, there's nothing else what I'm doing. So I went along with it. And I really like like them as people. Still do today, all of them. That we got on so well. But really, we shouldn't have been in the same bar. They were very, <laughs> yeah. Mm. There's that so, uh, back to Manson shirts. There's that fantastic band photo where you're in uh, leather pants and uh, Charles Manson shirt, a different one this time, uh, aiming a crossbow. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 We, we got into crossbows. Um, um, they, um, I was living with a tattooist, Lyle Hardy, and, and we got into kind of like, I mean, we don't, we're not allowed guns. We have to have crossbows. We can't use, have guns in the UK. You guys... <laughs> You get, guys get guns. We never got guns. Yeah, you guys knives and crossbows. <laughs> crossbows. So, yeah. But um, yeah, and, and the image of the girl, I, we just, at that time, people really mistake what that was about. It, that wasn't just the shock value of 
because what was happening uh, that we were never a political band but we did react to things that were happening around us and at that time um you know all around the world kids were kind of being forced into battles whether it was like in the middle east where they were you know being used to walk across minefields whether it was in northern ireland where they were getting shot by and killed by rubber bullets and stuff so um it was just to show the brutality of of, of wars and and you know geopolitical stuff but that's but saying that i don't want to go too much in because we were never political really right. And so did you, when, when they decided you, you got the call, you're in the band, it's happening. What, what, what then, what, what transpired then after that? So then we decided we need to get as much money as possible. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, Sex Pistols, Psychic TV, it's what you do. So we wanted to get a big record deal. And so we went out and we got a big, big record deal. Um, like we signed for like half a million pounds, which was a fucking large amount. Was that partly due to their connection, the Southern Death Cult connection? So were were people were people looking for you know getting them to you know for the next the next thing? It's kind of funny because one of the band I won't mention which one definitely thought that. So when when so we got this guy who who was like a deal guy. He would go out and get deals for bands and take a cut because we didn't want to speak to the men in suits. So he went and did that. Uh, so so he went out and got RCA, to, but it came back with a big deal. And one of the band, whose names I won't mention, said, you know what? Actually, we've got this on the strength of Southern Death Cult, so I think we should perhaps get a bigger cut than B. Gotcha. And this guy went, this guy went, no, no. This deal wasn't just on some death cult. This deal was from B's Japanese press book, which was like was like a few inches thick. Right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Front covers. Yeah. But and it was this deal is as much that as it is. <laughs> so yeah, so that didn't happen. I got my fair share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but famously or infamously or however, the, the an album is not gonna come to fruition. So what ended up happening after you oh, get the deal? It was the worst thing that happened to us because we signed to this record company and within weeks, the record company imploded because the managing director left the company and moved to the States, uh, to RCA America. But not only did he leave, but he took all the the people that were any good with him. So the the head of A and R, the finders, uh, the head of marketing, all the, the the cream of the company then left. So we then went through a year of RCA bringing in new people who would last a few months, and every person that came in would say, "Oh." Okay, everything you've done, we don't like. We're going to redo it, or whatever. They'd have a different take on it. So we would have be constantly battling. So we spent a year of like arguing within the band about its direction, but then arguing with these record company A and R guys that were awful, terrible. Uh, and then they'd last a few months, and then they would be gone. Um, and each each time they left, it would be a big chunk of the budget. Because although we got signed for half a million 
pound a lot it was like for recording costs and stuff and we were in recording studios that were costing thousands of pounds every day it goes uh, fast mm, it did it went it did go very fast actually so uh so yeah it, it it was a horror story really and i mean it it yeah and after doing it for a year we just said the only way out of this contract is to, is to split the band so we so the band broke up and barry and i were the only two in the band that were on the same page regarding music uh we really connected and so we stuck together and formed into a circle which came after getting the fear funny with the name as well the band couldn't even agree on the name the only reason the band were called getting the fear is because like the the rca was signed with were due to give us a hand over a check for half a million pound but we didn't have a name for the band because we couldn't agree so uh, mine was mine was the only name because i came up with it uh that got two votes there you go it's, i mean it is a great name did you were you guys playing live at all or no yeah we did we did live did we do that i can't remember wow I so but we, if it, I it, it, we did yeah, uh, yeah. There's a there's a, a video for uh, Against the Wind that uh, Jacqueline edited, and I think yeah, there's some some live footage then. in there. Yeah, we'd got a deal. We 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 didn't play live before we got the deal, though. That was afterwards. Right, we okay. spent loads of money on the live shows, like the big paintings of the girl with the crossbow and the Manson eyes, which would come up from behind her. And, and yeah, we got. <laughs> so yeah, we hadn't played live. It was kind kind of quite a cool that we pulled with that you know getting all that money without playing any live shows yeah <laughs> and I, I love that the manson stuff continued on through getting the very even you using the jacket as mm. uh, the imagery oh, oh and stuff. God, that, yeah the reason we could get away with that because at that time now it seems a bit oh nothing but at that time it really meant something that it was really taboo you did not do stuff like that then and so I'd I'd seen this jacket in a magazine called Nova, which is an American, and it was an article on um, uh, the Manson's women's embroidery, and I'd love that image, and and I'm like I want to put that on the front because uh, our CA wanted to put the band's photo on the front. We said no, we're going to put this on the front. We had a big argument. We won, so they said okay, and um, but then we thought fuck if they know it's the Manson. You know, jacket. They won't <laughs> let us use it on our album cover, a single cover. So um, we we kind of said, yeah, this is the artwork. And we went, okay, who did the photograph? And we we're like, oh god, we had to get permission. So they were so on together that we gave them the, the the number of some photography in America through the magazine. They called up, and not once did they mention where did the photo come from. They didn't ask, but <laughs> they just got approval, nice. paid the guy 150 pounds or something to use it. And then also, if you look at that picture in the embroidery, there's people having sex. There's loads of stuff. Uh, <laughs> there, I think loads of stuff that they would, they, that we knew they would not let go. They'd want to right. airbrush out or something. So the cover was designed by the guy I mentioned earlier, Mark Manning, who did who was Zodiac Mindwell, he would later become Zodiac Mindwell. And this was when he was becoming Zodiac Mindwell. So he walked in, he's also he's a brilliant artist as well. 
he um so he, he did all the layout and everything so he walked in with this big like back in the day he would bring things on on card with it with like some paper over and so he walked in with this big presentation looking like manson actually like big hair <laughs> loads of tattoos scruffy smelly uh, <laughs> waistcoat with all like you know with kind of german insignia on it and 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 they were like these you know fresh-faced people that just brought in these like um art department people and uh and so he walked into this big boardroom and with the artwork and they were just like straight away like what the fuck is this and then when he came in he opened it up and presented the artwork and he was pointing things out about how he loved the way the colors i think he was an acid actually he was talking about how the <laughs> colors uh, merged with each other but they didn't look at the at the artwork they were just looking at his dirty fingernails and these big German rings with skulls and all this stuff. On, and he was going like, yeah, it's a bit of, he was like Dennis Hopper in uh, Apocalypse Now. Wow. And, and they just froze and they just went, okay, approve. Yeah. They're like, oh, all right, it's cool. Yeah. 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 Like, all right, whatever. It's they, on, yeah. they wanted him out of the room. So they just approved it. <laughs> so we got yeah, away it, with that. It does mm -hmm. feel like they didn't know how to look at it. Like they didn't no. know what to, it was just a swirl of color to them or something. Yeah. And him too, because he was probably tripping, but uh, <laughs> they were following his fingers. They were looking at his dirty fingernails, seriously, and his rings. It was fucking great. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know how I got onto that. I sleeve. love it. I, it, it was, that's, that's so incredible. So eventually, obviously it just, it's just not happening. The, the band dissolves and where are you at now? mentally like what 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 did what did you see for yourself once the band is dissolving what did you see for yourself as a future or or even a a, a near future what were you looking at next i i found my voice um and i found uh my lyric and i knew uh what i wanted to explore um and um and that that's what I wanted the music to represent. Um, so I, I, yeah, getting the fear was, was um, it was almost like a mood board for me, where I could try different things and put things together. And then within to a circle, I, it was there. I knew uh, along with Barry what we wanted to do. And in hindsight, I kind of now realized that, you know, what we were, I think we were doing, we were trying to achieve, go into some higher state of spirituality uh, through drugs and music and incorporating the two. And they were both reflecting each other. Uh, so we were experimenting with a lot of drugs and a lot of music, sometimes together, sometimes not. And so that's what the music that we were writing became. Um, um, very much about spirituality actually it was it was this place uh, which came which was kind of cloaked in in this darkness but was was essentially trying to find a light in the shadows as well um and to just some kind of direction out of the shadows but st while still remaining in them um so that's what uh, and also exploration of like uh sexuality and escapism um 
and getting away from like you know uh, the harshness of life really they're very much escapist really and yeah that's what we embrace and but the 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 issue was that we would get like you know the lazy label of things like goth that people would because they wouldn't understand what we were doing i think back then we kind of didn't also we didn't fit in uh, with anything with any scene whatsoever we didn't fit in with the psychic tv scene or the coil or any of those scenes we were just out there you know we ended up working with like you know bronski b like larry from bronski b uh he was he produced us and stuff and you know so um yeah we just didn't fit we couldn't be categorized and and in music and that if you don't fit into any genre you're pretty fucked especially back then um so so that that was a big but we didn't we didn't mind because we we weren't you know i i'd sold out years ago I'd had my little taste. <laughs> you already did I, it, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I knew it, but I knew that I wanted to be really, I wanted to be moved by the music that I made myself. I wasn't, I wasn't really making it for other people. It was very selfish what I was doing, um, and yeah. So, so that that's where it went, and we spent we spent quite a few years doing that without any limitations, which I loved as well. Uh, not fitting into any genre, and that can give you immense freedom as well. So that that was really, yeah. So B, we've talked about into a circle and panache and getting the fear a bit, but did you ever have any aspirations or any? Uh, did you ever start making any experimental music with your proximity to all of these other people and your interest in it for so long? Yes, I mean, b- before I answer that, I'd just like to clarify that a lot of the stuff that with uh not panache obviously but with the later action getting fear and then much much more so with into a circle um even though the way that it was delivered and and you know uh presented was so different to all my friend the music my friends were doing the the core of it was 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 the same it was you know i was writing about the same kind of stuff and and dealing with the same in the same domain, but it was just presented in a completely different format. And to some extent, that was intentional because then it, it was like covering all bases with what we were doing. I mean, especially into Circle, it was very delving into that world of uh, spirituality and, and as I said, the, the dark domain as well, but presenting it in a much more palatable, uh, lighter way. But um, you know, we, we were taking cues from the same uh, uh, people, like you know, Geisen and Burroughs and Magic, and it, it was it was very much in that domain. And it wasn't until I came to do the Thai Capsule project, which was very my own thing, completely my own thing. So I made a conscious decision to do to not try and present that in a commercial way because that was delving into this world of animism and spirituality. And so I decided to not try and uh, put it through the mechanics of, of like a commercial um, system. So um, maybe I'll just talk about what the process of that. Please. It started off with a word. So I, I wrote um, most of the, um, the stories, the narrative, or, or the prose, which became the tracks on the tie capsule. And then what I decided to do was 
to, to wrap around it, not just music, but field recordings. So I spent a couple of years going out and recording uh, some sounds that would be, were audible, like uh, would, you know, be crows or um, sounds like people speaking in the streets and, you know, typical field recordings. And then I, I also took on board something which Jeff from Coyle uh, told me, we spoke about a lot in that anything like that should have substance. So even if it's not audible, I went and recorded in places where these things happened, be it like um, temples, uh, markets, uh, sex hotels, so and, and to get this ambience. And I put those on, on, on the tracks as well. You can't really dis distinguish that they're there, but they are to, to have that, that substance as well. And then all the instrumentation I did myself on those uh, tracks as well, playing keyboards, some uh, all the instruments as well. Some uh, were uh, virtual and some real. And then when I put it all together, I, I went to uh, a guy called Mark Godwin, who did a lot of uh, work with uh, Sleaze in, in the later years. And he mastered them with me just, just to, to get the audio really amazing as well. So, but I wanted to keep the, the core of the, the, the subjects, which was animism. It's like animism on acid. Uh, that, that's how I described the, the whole tie capsule tracks. Yeah, so just to give it authenticity, they're, they're, they're really soaked in authenticity with stuff you can hear. I wanted everything to be real. I didn't want to use any kind of um, sound effect uh, things. There's, there's only, I think there's two that are one was the sound of a hummingbird, which I really wanted on one of the tracks, and I couldn't get a recording of it. And I spent days and days and weeks trying to get a sound of a hummingbird. Nothing was good enough. So that's the only file that I didn't record myself. Hummingbirds are tricky. We have feeders outside here on my porch, and sometimes mm. I will just put my on like nice days. I'll put my recorder out there to try and catch Ooh. them because they'll they'll play and they'll zip around each other, and that sound is so intense. I love I love that, I, yeah, but it is really tricky to to catch them. I mean, they really they move fast. You can't if there's one outside, you can't just go record it. You have to kind of no. sit and you have to wait. It's very much a waiting <laughs> game. Yeah, I really I, had I known that I would have been in touch with you to get that that sample, <laughs> uh, but I. Yeah, so so that that's the only the things that aren't, aren't real. But everything else, I wanted it completely to, uh, stuff that I've recorded myself, um, just to keep that substance, which Jeff emphasized was so important. I think yeah. that that is really important to put not only substance of a place, but a but your personal take on it, like mm. you being there recording it is. It's about doing things with intention, right? Yeah, it's so, all about intention that lends to that and it's the subliminal things it's mm. even you know people have dissected uh things that like microphones picked up on beatles records from however many years ago you know just like some unintentional thing that happened in the studio that's still captured on the tape and part of the reason people obsess over that sort of thing is because it's it's real it humanizes yeah. it it makes it something other than not just music but it takes it into another realm where where we get a little peek behind the curtain there we get a little glimpse of the process of the hands of the maker in it right yes that that yeah totally that i that with, even with into a circle when we re when we redid the last album that we just recorded there was one track which um out of anything i've ever written in my whole 
um, uh, time as, as doing music, it's it's if I could only have one song, it would be that song that I would take with me. And the, how that came about was uh, my ex-boyfriend died. And it's kind of a long story. I'll try and give you the short version. Right here. So he died and and um, a, a clairvoyant spiritualist person um, got in touch with me and he he told me that he was getting these messages from from someone close to me. So I, I met with the guy and and he told me that when when my boyfriend died, the way I deal with a lot of things is by writing. So I I wrote I put this whole book together of our which was memories of us of our times together, and then I had it translated into Thai so his mom and his sister and his family so they could all share this too. That's really and, sweet. Yes, I, I I did that, and and this the the clairvoyant the medium said to me, oh, he really loves that you did that for him so much. I didn't tell the guy that I'd done that; he knew, and um, and he said, but he wants you to do something else. He, and he didn't know I was a musician. This guy, and he said he wants you to write a song for him. And I said, okay. And at that time, I wasn't I wasn't working with any other musicians or doing anything. So I let that slip. And then six months later, he got back in touch to a friend and said and said to me, um, "I'm still getting messages. You've not done that song. He really wants you to do oh, that wow. song." And by then, I was working with my music partner Barry with Into a Circle. So then I said, "Okay, I'll you know I got we put some music together, and then I sat down to write this song and. I was writing the lyrics and it wasn't going anywhere. It was just really too gushing and it was, uh, it just wasn't happening. So I, I kind of lit a candle and, and called his spirit. And, um, and instantly I just, I, within, within moments, I just started, tears were streaming down my face and I just started writing and I wrote and recorded the whole song, like as it, it just came to me and we did that. And then we decided, to to then record it properly but when we released the the mini album i i i kind of convinced my barry because he didn't want to do it i said look i want the final the first track to be this song that we re-recorded but then the last track i want to use the exact version that it came to me when i was writing as i was singing uh, okay. That's how I kind of didn't write it down. I I kind of uh, sang it into the mic, and so the version, the final. Uh, so there's two versions. The last version is is that exact version where where it was just like in real time. Yeah. And for me, that is so fucking potent. It's so all the audio people will be like, oh, there's too much reverb. It's you know, it's it's a shit mic and all that stuff. None of that matters. It, the intent was there it, it was it captured so much more it captured the spirit basically there were spirits present on that so that that's the final track on on the into a circle um and that's my frozen heart mm, yes yeah okay yes. and you, you're still working with barry this is like oh. 40 years almost now well we didn't work for like uh we had a break of about 30 years and then <laughs> okay. we just got together just before covid happened and then but the reason we got together was because we had a, a whole selection of songs that we played live with. Uh, we'd been out and performed them live with Rose and Annie, Little Annie, Anxiety, and but we never recorded them. So we decided to get go back in the studios, record them all. Then we did two live shows. But then I felt like, you know, in the words of um, 
of the throbbing whistle that you know the mission was terminated it was we'd, right we'd taken it as far as we could take it i thought so now uh i'm looking towards the future there'll be more tie capsule stuff the thing with john gosling uh who i was in contact with today that will happen too and the futon reunion show uh is happening in uh october in Bangkok. excellent excellent mm. so it's it's funny you talking about doing using the same ideas that something like Throb and Gristle would propagate, but doing it in a commercial fashion because they mm. they tried to do that too. I mean, right, like United, right, yes. stuff like that. They were they were making Hot on the Heels of Love. They're making pop mm. songs and trying yeah. to reach a different audience with it, and it seems so sort of. You know, things are a lot more segregated now in terms of genre and people's expectations mm. and stuff. But it is a a very real thing that, like, they were trying to preach those ideas through any means they had. Both of the crude, you know, blasting of Zyklon B Zombie on mm. the, the live tapes and stuff to the more refined, slick pop stuff that's, you know, sounds very Chris and Cozy sort of things. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's easy to lose sight of that, that that was part of the intent of industrial yeah. music is to subvert yeah. and to sneak in these mm-hmm. ideas and infiltration. Uh, yeah. It, it's total infiltration. It's like, you know, you get in whichever way you can. And, you know, if you approach it from all, all sides, then something's you know, going to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah. That's the mission. That That is the mission. Really. That's exactly what we do. And that, that was the way for me, I decided to not go down that, kind of industrial route, even though I love all that stuff, I love it. I just decided to present it in a different way, which is something that I've always done. As I said before, like in the psychic TV days when everyone had, you know, skinheads and stuff, my hair was really long. And so it was, you know, that intent was there back then as well. And they loved it too, all of them. There was never any, anyone saying, why don't you you know, what, why we're looking so different to us, why are you doing stuff that's so different to us? They they really embraced it. And that's why when I was doing the futon stuff, uh, in, especially in the early years, Sleaze was present throughout. And even on the last album, you know, he, he did the cover, he shot the cover for us of Painkiller, which mm-hmm. is the final futon album. Uh, he, he also mixed one of the tracks with Tim, Tim Simmons did the whole production. But Sleazy stepped in and mixed one of the tracks because he really loved it as well. So, you know, his involvement was throughout. So, yeah. yeah. Do you, you mentioned, you mentioned spirituality, especially in regards to the Thai Capsule Project and including and imbuing it with that stuff. Is that something that came to you more from living in Thailand or was that something that you always had with you when you were living in the UK? Or when did, when did you find your spiritual self and start to imbue it into your music? It's something that I've I've al- always been struggling to to capture and to reach this this magical elevated place and and you know first through we we had first through the conventional like you know in being going to churches when I was a young kid and quickly I realized that wasn't working and then with various forms of magic and stuff like that and um. So it's something that's always present. And, you know, even using the fast track of, uh, to get to spirituality through drugs and things like that, it was always that place that, that I was trying to reach. And it wasn't until I kind of really got sober and realized that the, the most you can get to the place with through drugs and on um, the fast track, but you're not really aware 
of where you are. And it's it's when you use other like meditation and music, then you can really enrich your your yourself with the spirituality. It's just like getting pissed and going into a church. You're not going to get the same, you know, <laughs> you, you won't remember it. I've tried that's it. A, that's <laughs> a really good analogy, actually. I, I guess we don't think of it that way a no. lot, but it, it really is. Yeah. You, you know, you don't get the same things out of it than when you're fully present and yeah. in it. And I think a lot of people are looking for that with, with drug use or looking for mm-hmm. something that they don't quite know what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. I, yeah. Trying to reach that place, which, you know, you walk into whether, whether it's a, a magnificent cathedral or whether it's an, a, a beautiful temple or you're trying to elevate the soul and the spirit that that's what we're doing. With drugs, it was the same thing. I was trying to elevate the spirit and the, and my soul and music too. That you know, those are the things that can do it. That's why music can be so dangerous, I think, as well, because the, the people in control they don't want us to get there. They don't want us to achieve this this realization of spirituality and freedom. Um, it's you know, it's a major factor of control, and that's why it's all mundane. You know. Yeah, and that's it's music and and rhythm and and noise and sound even you know noise without mm. rhythm or without whatever it's one of those things that can cause us to give over more to our primal selves it's one of the oldest things exactly. we have as a as a mm. society as a you know as an organism yeah. whatever we we had yeah. music as soon as someone banged two rocks yeah. together we started having music right yeah. and even before that, we have sound. We hear that we know the sound of trees swaying in the distance, and the sound of animals, and the sound of a creek running, and those things bring us back to something inside ourselves that's out, yeah. you know, that's not it, as controlled or influenced by the rest of the world. It's it's yeah. When I hear something, it's different for me than when you hear it, no matter what it is. Yeah. That's one of, one of yeah. the things I love doing about this podcast is we all mm-hmm. have our different takes when we talk about records or music. Yeah. It's a different experience and when we line up on it uh-huh. it's really cool because that's showing that the artist can paint a picture yeah. but also we can have di- completely diverging ideas on it of course but it but basically the destination is the same place right right yeah have, our, our places just look different right our rooms exactly, are just painted whether differently you, whether you're doing industrial music or whether you're doing it in that if the intent is there throughout all everything i did I've done it. It's had the intent, which is another reason that I really the big taboo for me is doing any any music that's political. I don't do anything that's political for me. That that's the mundane and that's that's the antithesis of of spirituality. It's politics. You know, there's in Burroughs really. You know, he really uh, drove that home to me as well. That you know. The only thing one should try, the enemy is control, but yeah. politics has nothing to do with that, really. It, it's all puppets and, and stuff. It's 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 very Wizard of Oz. You need to pull the curtain, <laughs> step behind the curtain. Don't be, don't be, the smoke and mirrors, don't let that fool you. So it, everything I did was for, like done from behind the curtain. Yeah. That, that's, um, that's the intent. Yeah. Awesome. Even though it may not seem it. Uh, it it still comes from the same, it has the same goal, same yeah, destination. I really appreciate you taking the time to to explain all this to me and, and talk about all this. That's awesome. Thank you, Gray. Thank you <laughs> yeah. so much. It's been wonderful.
Yeah, this it's is really cool. Because a lot of the stuff that we do, sometimes we don't know why we do it. We just do it. And it's only when we speak to people like you that we can place it together. Well, I can place it together in my own head. Because a lot of it, it comes from the subconscious as well. It's, it's yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, and you you spend more time doing than you do thinking about doing, right? I mean, that's uh, a lot yeah. of us. Like, I spend yeah. a lot more time thinking about, or I spend a lot more time trying to create or being in my creative space than thinking about yeah. how to frame my creative space. Uh, other than the yeah, things exactly. we already do, our little things of ritual mm-hmm. and preparation, lighting the incense, yeah. putting on the colored lights, getting, you know, meditating, that kind of stuff. That's yeah. the process. That's important. Yeah. I think that's yeah. very, very, that's very important. I think um, it's one of the things that we at the podcast try to talk about a bit is intention and 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 ritual a bit or and setting for mm. when you're creating because those things are very important to the final product and very important to development as an artist. Anyone can sit down and bang out something or sit in front of a computer and click out, you know, something on Ableton or whatever it is. It's very accessible to everybody, mm. but doing it with intention, doing it with purpose and doing it Mm. with in a specific state of mind and readiness to create Mm. these sort of things makes a big difference. Yeah, it's much harder to, to have connection these days, I think. And uh, the technology, even though I love technology, it can also, it, it can be a curse as well. Yeah, it well, can, for me, it's always been the tyranny of choice. There's too much I can do with it. And I need, I am yeah. a person who needs limitations and mm-hmm. rules and finding a way to work within and against those things. Yes. I think that, yeah. that that's, that's a, a major consideration, I think, really. Things are just too easy nowadays. Like I can remember back in in the a, a great example of this is like in the eighties, early eighties, when there wasn't much. Um, even though it was nearer to when uh, the 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 process of the final judgment, it wasn't that many years since it had, had, had been fully functional. But there was nothing around. You couldn't get anything. There was no information on it but um tibet david tibet he was a member of the british library so he could get access to all these all these documents and he would go in and they wouldn't let him take them out so he would read them into a tape recorder and then bring out the tapes and we'd all sit round, (laughs) and it would be like the holy grail and it was we'd just like feast on it it was amazing now you can just go on the internet and it's all there yeah but me included, I don't spend any time doing as much research as I would back then. It, it's lost its value. And Geisen said, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, people would travel for hundreds of miles just to see an image. Today, we are bombarded with image as every second. So it loses the potency. And I think music, too, can lose that potency without, as we said, the intent. I'm, I'm trying to... Oh yeah. Okay. I'm trying to remember, uh, there was a, there's a quote that just reminded me of, uh, something basically about the Mona Lisa, right? How it's, uh, it's so famous and we've all seen it all comparative to how many people have actually been and seen it in person. It's, Mm. it's got this like cultural zeitgeist. It's got this thing that I know I can picture it in my head, but I've never, I've never been to see it. Right. I've just, it's been in books and this, so it's, it's diluted Mm. almost in a way, uh, from the, the actual act of and the same kind of thing with tibet bringing out tapes of the process church documentation and that stuff is that 
it, it was a holy grail. It was a thing that you didn't yeah. have access to. One person mm-hmm. did, and they had to figure out how to share it with the other yeah. people who would be interested in it. Mm-hmm. And it was also connection time of like a shared interest for yeah. you guys, right? So yeah. that's a really big thing that is lost is that it's decontextualized. Yeah, I can yeah. read whatever on the internet, but mm-hmm. I'm sitting here in my house doing it instead of sitting with a group of friends discussing it, sitting here and and figuring it out and arguing, recontextualizing, exploring yeah. and trying to get to the bottom of things, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 the potency, it loses its potency, doesn't it? When I was a little kid, I, I noticed, noted that my my kind of mentors and people like Burroughs and Geisen and Nico, they mm. all spent a long, long part of their life not living in the countries that they were born and grew up in. Yeah. And that was one of the, not the reason why I went to Thailand, but after a few years, I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of doing what my mentors did yeah i you know i don't know that i ever peeled that away from it when i was growing up and and realized that but it is it's very true and it's very formative yeah a way of i mean it seemed like for a good few of them a way of alienating themselves and making themselves even Mm. more of an outsider than they already were because we're talking about people Mm. who are already just on the fringes Mm -hmm. and they decide to go somewhere where they don't even speak the language. I did, yeah. <laughs> you know? And that that thing must be very transformative and very important yeah, to it, it, it was to me a without viewpoint. a doubt. Yeah. It re- it really was, and and you get you know you, it's like st- it's stepping back and looking at something from that distance. You can you get a much clearer picture. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I, I've I've always wanted to moved to well not always but for years i've wanted to move to europe and my my two probably favorite places are budapest and uh and vienna i really like both of those places and i've been i've been to vienna a lot i've been to all the beautiful churches Mm. there and i've I've been to budapest a good few times too and i have some friends there i really i really like it there but it's so otherworldly to me and i can't you know the the this the struggles of living there it's Mm. it's very daunting well when you're there it's i must say it, it seems daunting until you are there. And once you submerge yourself in it, it's not. It's yeah. not. That's what the authorities want us to think too. And that's why the authorities and control, they're making it harder for us to travel. They don't want us to do that. They don't want us relocating. Yeah. They want us to stay where we are and not move. That's, that's, I think that's an aspect of control that is very considered. Right. When we travel, we, we spread ideas and make connections, right? Mm-hmm. Then that's why I think that's one of the reasons they're making it so hard for people. I mean, it's got much, much tougher, especially in the last 10 years to, to, to travel to anywhere for any length of time. And were you, were you still keeping in touch with, with balance and, and sleazy and Jen at this time? You, you, you always maintained those connections in Mm. some way, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sleazy, I didn't, Sleazy, I didn't. I knew we, I'd met quite a lot, but it wasn't until much later, uh, in in the mid nineties, when I really connected with Sleaze. especially when when he moved over from uh, England to Thailand, because he lived with me for a, a while then too. Uh, okay, so you got you guys did you guys lived together in Thailand for a while then, and that's in the mid nineties. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. Um, yes. Late. 
No, probably the 2000s when he had okay, okay. Jeff and Fred would, would come and visit, as would a lot of people, and they'd come and stay with me for a, a few weeks, and we'd hang out uh, from like 1992 onwards, perhaps. And they always used to come and, and stay at my place, and, and we'd hang out, but just for like maybe two to three weeks. And then around about 2000, then oh, let's say 2002, maybe, uh, Jeff and, and Slade kind of uh, had a bit of a separation right. uh, as a relationship. So that's when Sleazy came over and stayed for months with me, and then he got his own place. You, you've mentioned Geisen a few times now, and he's someone you will have, you know, that's you have a connection with, with, mm. with Geisen. Uh, and Always, how did, yeah. Yeah, how did that come about? And, and when did you first, when did you first discover just... Tell us about your connection uh, with 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 Brian Geisen. The, the first time that I heard Geisen's name was actually through David Bowie. Um, it it was uh, cracked when I saw a cracked actor, because um, that kind of predates um, like you know Throbbing Gristle and Genesis and anyone else that would mention name check Geisen. So it was through through David Bowie, and that just some it's like a nodal point where I just attached that name and it logged it was logged so it's there and um I love Burroughs too I, I do but for me Geisen I I don't know what I could just I mean I it's it's odd because I'm not into you know if if junk was was Burroughs's kick then then you know uh cannabis or you know, was was Geisen's kick, but I never, I never did, I couldn't do cannabis ever. It never, it either didn't work or it made me crazy. Uh, so it wasn't that aspect at all. Um, Geisen just saw things in a different way, and he he could represent them in a different way. And to me, he's a master. He was a master to Burroughs. Is he? He's above everything. He he's like. Um, and his words had so much weight. So I, I read all his, I, I, you know, it, it wasn't always easy to get his books back in the day, but, it, but you know, they just carried so much weight and he just laid things out. And the time that I, um, the time that I met him, Genesis, we were playing with Getting the Fear in Paris and, and Jen was coming over to see Geisen. And, and so Jen said, oh, so why don't you stay over? And we'll hang out, and then we'll go see Brian. So I did, and so Jen took me around. But this was when Jen was just getting into his Brian Jones phase, about <laughs> right, eighty-five. Right. And so we went over there, and it was really lovely. And they obviously had a big, you know, bond between them. But Jen was pestering Brian all the time, like, and he brought a tape recorder and everything, and he, he was like, "Tell me stuff about Brian Jones." <laughs> and Brian Geisen was like, well, he's not really that much to say. And, and Genesis would be like, oh, come on, tell me. There's stuff you're not telling me. Tell me more. <laughs> and, and Brian's like, well, I've kind of said everything. This, and then, But Jen wouldn't let go. And then Brian Brian actually like, and I went, oh, Jen, what do you want me to say? He was a little shit. <laughs> 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 um, it was hilarious. <laughs> Brian told Jenna. Um, so that was fun. And um, 
but then um paula uh was uh she called Jen up and there was something happening in I don't know what, but you went and had a telephone conversation with um with Paula and um and then Brian turned to me and and said and said, Tell me about you. And wow, that focus is just like fuck. And and I just said the first thing that came into my head, because I just I just met someone and fallen in love with a guy for the first time. And I said that and he just he he just like became this other person. And he went, ah, oh, love. And, and then he reached down and, and he showed me these. He said, look at these photographs. And he went, this is one of my loves. And then he just shared these stories of this young Moroccan prince that he dated and was telling me all these wonderful stories about the time where he would sneak into the prince's sneak secret garden and they'd sleep naked under the stars. And he was such a raconteur. He was just so, so enthralling. And yeah, he just struck a card. And I, I think he had that effect on a lot of, you know, for him, the, with Burroughs as well, Burroughs had held him in such high esteem. Everyone did, really. Well, yeah. not everyone that met him, obviously, but anyone <laughs> that I would care about did. Right. A lot of people hated Brian because, he, you know, I, I, he could be a bitch and awful. and <laughs> But, you know, the people that I care about held him in. And my other friend... Who I love dearly, uh, Kathleen Gray, who's who's she was part of the Biosphere project in the October Gallery. She would she tells me this great story about when she um she was friends with Burroughs and Dyson uh, in the early seventies, and she was round at, at Brian's flat one day. Um, I guess it must have been the uh, mid 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 seventy six something like that. Anyway, so she turns up at Brian's flat in the one in opposite the Pompidou Centre that I go to years later. And um, and she said he had this music on and he was dancing around the room and he was super animated and happy. And 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 he turned to me and he said, oh my God, these young kids have just been around and they've made this record and it's amazing. Have a look at it. And he showed her the record and it was Heathen Earth. It was, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Sleazy and Jen that had just been around to see him. These young kids. <laughs> These young oh. whippersnappers. That's so cool. Mm. And he loved it. She said he was dancing around the room to it. Yeah. I love that image. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Special. A very special human. There were a couple stories I was told to ask you about that that uh, maybe you would, you would tell us. But uh, one of them was a uh, Navy Admiral BDSM tail oh yeah my slave yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it was back again to this club isn't it but we keep going back to that club yeah <laughs> you can't get away yeah there was this guy that used to come into the club and and oh he i don't know why but he was enamored by me and and he would say oh I'd, he loved to be spanked and 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 he would come and say oh i'd love to do a session with you and i'm like yeah i'm not into that no <laughs> And he went, oh, there's money. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not bothered. I don't need, I'm fine. Thank you. Anyway, um, one day he turned up with these really gorgeous looking skinheads. I'm like, oh, and he went, and, and so he said, oh, you don't have to do anything. You could just come back and, and watch them, you know, give me a good session. So I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so so I, I did. And, and then 
and then learned very quickly that he he was very odd in that way that there was no physical con- touching or anything or undressing or anything. You just have to hit him with a stick. So so and one of the skinners, well, come on, come on, might have a go. And so um, so so for me, it was never a kind of sexual thing, but he just became a bit obsessed. And maybe I was just, or maybe I'm just good with a stick. I don't know. But um. But yeah, so but he was a lovely old guy as well. He was really sweet as well, <laughs> um, and and so he'd just come down to the club, and every week he'd be like, "What do you want? I'll get you anything." I'm like, "I don't want anything." Um, so yeah, his, I I won't give you his full name, but it's funny because his first name was Rodden. <laughs> which, <laughs> that's true. That's true. That was my slave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the and thing it, about slaves is that if you're not into it, it's fucking boring because they just talk on and on and on about what they want you to do. And it's like, oh, like if, you, if you're, want, <laughs> did you end up to, getting into it? No, you never were really it. into it. No, no, I just wanted to give him a good hit thing to shut him up. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, no, it's totally not at all. And yeah, there was nothing sexual about that for me whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another Ooh. story I was told to ask about involves a cartoon rat. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> so, so this was the amazing person back to the club again, um, uh, who started that club. Um, and this was a guy called David. This is all documented, so I don't. I'm not. You know, I'm not kind of telling the tale on anyone. Uh, even though I am. Anyway, so this guy, he was an amazing guy. I met him in Japan. He came he came backstage to one of the Panache shows and he's like, why are you doing this? He's like, you look great. You, and after talking to you, you should not be doing what you're doing. You should be doing your own stuff. So I'm like, yeah, I, I, I get that. And he said, look, come back to England. We'll set up something. I'll put you in with some proper musicians. We'll We'll do a solo career. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So, um, so I went along with that, and um, he, sure enough, um, he put me in the studio with people like Bill Nelson, and um, who is one of the most talented musicians I've ever come across. I mean, uh, I knew his band Bebop Deluxe, um, but the stuff he did with YMO and that is just insane. Um, so, so. Um, we were doing that, and he was a real visionary, this guy. He was the one that put me in touch with the BBC playwright, and we were doing this play based on the, the diaries of Petronius, and it was all coming together really well, and it was going to be something. It really was going to be something. And he was also a puppeteer, and he'd been on TV, a UK TV, with this space cat called Mooncat, which is kind of funny, cat that he did. and. And he told me that he was getting a new project together with this rat puppet. And I, at the time, I was living with a dressmaker, and he, who he was dating as well, actually. So he would come round to our apartment, and him and dress, this dressmaker would put this puppet together, which became this rat called Roland, Roland the Rat. And, and I thought, oh my God, that rat looks shit. <laughs> it's never going to do anything. It's a load of bollocks. It's shit. Oh, within three months, this rat became the biggest thing in England. 
within three months, this rat was interviewing Bon John Bon Jovi and Boy George and Cliff Richard and all these fucking megastars. It had its own TV show in the UK on Breakfast TV. It was a household name. It's a house. It still is a household name. And so, unfortunately, dumped me under the fetish club <laughs> for 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 the rat for the rat for the puppet. Rat. So uh, basically, a rat puppet stole my career. <laughs> yeah. Roland Rat. Roland Rat. Yeah, look it up. It's still shit. I still think it's shit. <laughs> it looks shit. It does. It really does. But the guy disappeared. No one ever saw him again. Because oh yeah. The, yeah, because the tabloids picked up on the fact that this children's entertainer also ran a fetish club. So he, he pulled the hat to the. Uh, the garbage and everything and just left his life and just concentrated on the rat. Yeah. Funny. That's, that's amazing. Mm, yes. And, you know, so moving to modern times, what, what it was a series of when, when, when there's a couple things that happen, it's, it's, it's a sign that we need to pursue this Avenue. So what someone wrote us a, a really great long email about how we need to have you on the podcast. And it was someone that worked with you on the audiobook, uh, Genesis oh. audiobook. And, and then we were having Juran doing some research and pulled out England's Hidden Reverse, the book. And there, your name is mentioned in the book. Then we, oh. we then, then we talked to Drew. He mentions you. So all of a sudden, it's like it, within the span of about two weeks, we're, your name is just a people. <laughs> so we're like, all right, th there's something we, we need to be talking to B because we're, we're getting this. We're, this, is, this is all happening now. So obviously, Jen is someone who's been important to you for your whole life and or, or at least your, your life you know, since meeting him, obviously your, your, your life since the 80s. And you, you, the opportunity comes along to do the audit, to do the uh, reading of the audiobook. So, can you tell us how that came about, and mm. and what that meant for you to be able to be the voice of the of the book? Yeah, it 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 was very emotional on so many levels because what happened is that Jeanette, who's the youngest of of Jen's daughters, um. And when Janice was born, I was actually in there. Janice, like Caress, was born at home. Um, and so when she the, when she was born, there was just Paula, obviously the mom, and Genesis, um, and two midwives and myself. Um, and I was kind of videoing it. Actually, I got told off because <laughs> the midwife's like, move that fucking camera, I can't pull the baby out. So was, <laughs> they were big, those cameras in those days. Anyway, so um, Janice was over and she was staying with me in London at the place where I was staying. And the book had come out and they were, she was saying, oh, I think they'll do an audible. And I'm like, oh, great. And we spoke about possible people that we thought would be good to do it. I actually suggested maybe Maxine Peake, the English actor. Um, anyway, and I didn't think any more of it. And then about about almost maybe a year later, she contacted me and she calls me Uncle B. She said, hey, Uncle B, listen, would you be up for uh, pitching to read Dad's book? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, 
And she said, well, just read a chapter, record it, and send it to this guy, Tim. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So I did. I did that. And then I got an email from Tim saying, oh, listen, I've just heard what you did. I, I'm going to come to England. He was in New York. I'm flying to England. I w I'd love to meet you. So he did. And then I'm, so I met him. And it was such a lovely man. Oh, he so gets it. It's so amazing. Um, and he, Tim said to me, he said, that, he said that, you know, he's maybe the reason that it had taken so long to find out anyone to read it because he, he really knows his stuff. He's, I don't know how long he's been with Audible, but he's so talented. And he said that they were sending, not the family, the estate, but, but like the publishers and the Audible people kept sending people for him to approve that were, none of them were right. And then, and then he said, when I, when I heard yours, I was just, okay, this has got something. And then he said, when I look deeper, I'm like, yeah, it's got to be you doing it. And then I said to him, I'd love, I, I really would love to do it. But the thing is, this was um, the last uh, couple of summers ago, I think last summer, I get confused with time. Anyway, um, I, I said, the only thing is I've only got one month, which is August, because then I'm going back to Thailand. So it would have to be that month or you have to come to Thailand. And he said, well, actually, August is the only month that my schedule allows it to do it also. So that was last August. And so he said, let's do it. So we did. And I very stupidly thought, you know what? I've got this. I've done radio for seven years. I've done voiceover. I've worked in studios since I was a little kid. So I know my way around this. It's going to be easy. And I said to Tim, hey, Tim, maybe I should like copy Jen's voice and do it in Jen's voice. And Tim's like, uh, I think that might be a bit of a tall order. So yeah. <laughs> stupid me. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, look, why don't we do this? Why don't we use do it in your voice? And then throughout towards the end of the book, in the middle and towards the end, we'll bring some as Jen in into it more. So it'll be like you and then Jen will come in at times. And then if you're doing a voice like William, it's not William, but it's Jen doing William's voice. So, yeah, he was brilliant. I mean, I've had some compliments from people, but Tim and the engineer was also very good. They They are largely the part of what makes it what it is because his direction was insane he was so good um but it was very emotional from i wanted to make it so obviously for genesis i wanted to do it right you know um but also for for the girls for caress and Janice, it's their dad you know i wanted to do it for them really well Absolutely. um so yeah so um and for me you know it was very emotional as well there was some towards the later parts of it when I was trying to get into his, like, you know, his voice, where it just felt. And I had, when when Jen passed them, um, Caress and Jenna sent me, like, uh, some things, and they sent me Jen's copper bangles because they said that Jen wore them a lot. And so so I took that into the studio with me and had it with me and throughout the readings and stuff. But it felt like he was very close you know, like he was coming into it. Um, so, yeah, it was really, really emotional. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and and the actual process of it, like you said, you 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 sort of in your mind, oh, I've done radio, I've done voiceover, I can do this. I imagine actually doing an audiobook because I mean, I know when we'll be on the podcast and I want to read a quote from an article. I get tripped up three words in and I think I, we do, we do, we, you know, I, I'm like, it's too true. So, so yeah. what, how, what is the actual process and how long oh. did it actually take? Well, this is the genius of Tim, the, the, the director, because the, the, the studio time that he booked was over the course of, I think it was nine days and we finished two hours early. He was that on point. <laughs> right, yeah. that's, so he knew he, had a good gauge about okay this is how long this is going to take yeah he, he he was amazing and i mean the book is about 15 and a half hours long i think so it's a long time but what i didn't realize apart from the fact that um how emotional i would become it was that when you're in the studio with the band you're not in front of the mic for that long you might be like two hours three hours tops but when you're doing an audible, you're there from from the moment you go into that studio. There's just you and the glass, and you're doing it all day, every day for like from the morning until you leave at night, and it's one hundred percent attention focused on you all the time. So that was, and there were there were some days when I couldn't. I mean, fortunately, I'd been doing live shows within Two Circle, so my vocal cords, you know, it's muscular. So the muscles were were in good form, which was great. Um, so that held up, but um, but emotionally and the drain, it was just insane how intense that amount of concentration was. And I was also, apart from reading it correctly, what's in front of you, I was also gauging how much of the emotion to bring in, and you know, and just the delivery, because when Jen writes, like. Things like an exclamation mark, he wouldn't mean it to be like forcefully, he would mean it to something else. So, so between Tim and I, we had to interpret what Jen was really saying, which words he was really putting emphasis on in the sentence. Because, you know, if someone else that didn't know Jen, they, that's a flat sentence. But both Tim and I knew between us what Jen was maybe implying. So we would put emphasis on different words, which one wouldn't normally do. So there was that. I would also know, I would hear John's, Jen's like monotone voice coming in at times when he wanted to emphasize, you know, that he was pissed with something or, you know, <laughs> irony. And so I would hear that a lot. Um, yeah, being so familiar helped me to do that. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I, it seems like they're absolutely you were the the perfect choice for that. And just like you said, knowing him, being close with him, being close with the family, it the, and and just doing it proper justice seems like mm. there you there's. I, yeah. It's so great that 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 it ended up landing with you, and 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 I'm, I'm you know what what a, what a what a great thing now to have there forever. You know, yeah. so that people can hear it forever. Um, I feel really honored to have done it, and I just. You know, aside from the fact that for the girls and for myself as well, it is, you know, it, it was it was wonderful. I'm I'm really yeah, I really love doing it. That's so great. Well, what is happening now? What does the life of B look like in 2023 looking to 2024? Right. Well, 
I'm 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 in the UK for a few more weeks. Um, I'm hoping I can finally. John Gosling from um, Zaskia and Mekon. We've been talking about doing stuff together for ages, and I'm hoping we can cement that now and yes. make it start it um, uh, in the next few weeks. Just get the ball rolling. So that's one thing, and then the other thing is that we're, it's the futon reunion. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we're we're flying. Uh, a record, um, no, a radio station in in Thailand is flying the whole of the band back from all over the world, from Japan, from uh, Ibiza, uh, England, to do a big, big reunion show in uh, October. So, so we're we're going to do that, which will be amazing. Um, I'm still writing the book that I've been writing forever. Um, which Jen used to give me loads of shit about. We used to say to each other, when are you going to finish your fucking book? And then I would say to, I'd say to Jen, when are you going to finish your fucking book? And and I've narrated his, so I guess I should finish now. now. Yeah, Shouldn't exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I should. So so there's that. Um, so so more music. Hopefully we've, the John thing will happen. And then Fulton, we might do some more, more stuff. Who knows? Uh, and then my own writing as well. Um, and I'm, I'm just hearing a lot of great music coming out as well. Um, it's kind of, I think it's a good time for music. There's a great new band I love uh, from over your neck of the woods, Harsh Symmetry, which is like dark car. It, it's one guy mm. um, who does these amazing sequence keyboards. And then he has another guy playing like cocktail playing guitar over the gorgeous. So, so there's that happening. There's some amazing Thai bands coming out um, as well. So I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into the Thai music scene as well now. Yeah, I think I want to reestablish my roots back in Bangkok. That's what I'm heading towards. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's that's where I'm heading. Excellent. Well, this was so cool. Thank you so much for taking the two hours, sit down with us and just go over your oh, thank you. incredible oh, history. I feel like, I feel like two hours. We, I feel like we just the tip of the iceberg. I feel like there's like, <laughs> but I, again, you just got to finish that book and then you got, then we gotta, we gotta get, mm. get into it more. Right. That's, uh, that's yeah, how it's I, I be. promise I will. And sorry for taking you two guys to that fetish club so many times. Hey, you know what? We would if we didn't want to go, we wouldn't have asked. And, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That again, that's just that 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 sort of stuff. Those stories are we could never we never get tired of hearing about it. And and that particular club is not one we've heard any stories of. So it completely com- it's completely can- exciting to us. I didn't even like it. <laughs> <laughs> you were just there. <laughs> Honest, man. <laughs> well, thank you so very much. And thank you to Tim for getting in contact and suggesting this as well. And for making the audiobook of Jen's memoir, Non-Binary, available with you. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you, Tim. Absolutely. And of course, also, uh, you know, shout out to Ryan, uh, Ryan Martin, mm-hmm. Deus, you know, Deus, Deus. of course, you know, who, mm-hmm. who, you know, released the, the getting the fear stuff and, and also provided, uh, some, some, some questions for us to ask. So always shout out to Ryan, great friend and great friend of the podcast. So excellent. Fantastic. B we're going to catch up with you over in Bangkok someday. I think that's the plan. 
<laughs> Come visit me. Yes. Always sounds, welcome. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.